The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Glad you're here with us on All Saints Day as we come to God's Word. Let's first start in prayer. Father, your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so I pray this morning, give us eyes to see it. Give us ears to hear it. Give us a heart that would want to follow you. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, We're on the final lap of our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, and everything in this model prayer is extraordinary and yet really pretty basic. Uh, It begins with worship. It moves to daily sustenance, continues into the realm of forgiveness, which we all know is our other daily need besides bread. Uh, And then we see in this final couplet of the prayer, a prayer for protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so like worship and sustenance and forgiveness, protection really is a basic human need. Uh, And temptation and evil threats that I'm pretty sure we all can relate to. Did you watch the news this week? I have started limiting my news intake to a maximum of 30 minutes a day so as not to be too overwhelmed or overburdened. So much loss of life. Senseless killings, natural disasters, Wars And so this week especially, I decided I needed a break. And Tuesday morning, I woke up, uh, came to work, looked at my newsfeed, and to my pleasant surprise, at the very top, the trending article had nothing to do with wars and death. It was a rerun of a New York Times article about candy because it was Halloween. The article's entitled, Test Your Candy IQ. I took the test, and I failed it. <laughs> failed it miserably. Which, for the first time, if I was going to fail a test, I decided this was the one to fail. Uh, But who knew that Reese's peanut butter cups have been the highest-selling Halloween candy for the last 15 years? Every other kid I know has a peanut allergy. (laughs) I immediately dismissed that as even being an option and then found out, in fact, people don't care on Halloween. (laughs) And they just put their peanut allergies to rest. Uh, Everyone loves candy. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, At this time every year, we're surrounded by it. We're enticed by it relentlessly, especially if you have small children. 
It's in Ziploc bags in your cupboards. It's in pails strewn about the house. It's in secret candy stashes in your child's bedroom or maybe in your bedroom. It's everywhere. It calls out. It allures us. It entices us just one bite, just one taste. It's because candy is tempting. This has been depicted before. Willy Wonka, Hansel and Gretel, Edmund, the allure of Turkish delight, being lured by sweet treats into sticky or disastrous situations. And each situation presents not only a a test of one's self-control or one's resolve, it also provides a temptation with a tempter or a temptress. In one story, it's a crazy man. And the other stories, alluring witches. And in all of them, there's a seemingly harmless voice inviting just one taste, just one bite. But it inevitably leads to destruction and even death. These are blithe examples of something that becomes not so harmless when we apply it to the actual greater arenas of life. Temptation's not a joke. And this part of Jesus' prayer is highlighting this vulnerability in us, our, our tendency to give in, our tendency towards the very sin that we probably just asked forgiveness for while reciting the Lord's Prayer. And this portion makes us admit that we're weaker than we'd like to think, and so we're in desperate need. We're in desperate need, not only for daily bread and daily forgiveness, but for daily strength and protection to try and have a different kind of life altogether, a life that is free from temptation and from sin and from evil. Is there such a protection? The prayer is yes. It answers yes. But to better understand what we're praying, let's consider first, what is temptation? And then second, how do we overcome it? So first, what is temptation? A temptation is actually difficult to define because the Greek word for temptation, pyrasmos, is regularly translated in two seemingly conflicting ways. Uh, if you look at James 1 with me, we'll see this. It's in your bulletin. In verses 13 to 15, pyrasmos is translated as temptation, and it carries obvious negative connotations. There's no question about it. But in verse 12, and more pointedly towards the beginning of the chapter in verses 2 through 4, pyrasmos is translated as trial. And it carries with it difficult but positive connotations. So which one are we praying about when we say, lead us not into pyrasmos? Trials or temptation? We might just be requesting help for both. And I I think the Apostle James will help us here to show us how trials and temptations are similar, but they're also very different, especially regarding two very important things, their source and their end game, where they come from and what they are intended for. Trials come from God, as difficult as they may be, and they aim to produce maturity in life. Temptation comes from evil, playing on desires in us. And its aim is always destruction and death. So first look at verses two through four. James says, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials, that's the word, of various kinds. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. There's the word again. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And so immediately we can discern a few things here about trials. First, we're instructed to consider trials with joy. This is never said about temptation. Secondly, it's not if, but when trials come. Consider it pure joy when you face trials. There is no such thing as a trial-free life. No matter how much we all like to hope and believe in a reality or in a God that would withhold trials from us, it is not the case on purpose. And then thirdly, trials come in various kinds, in various degrees. This is comforting to some of us, but maybe not for many of us right now. Some lives are harder than others, and some seasons of life are especially harder than others. And as a pastor, we carry your burdens. We know when you're in a particularly difficult season of life. And when you're there, the prayer, your particular version of this prayer is, lead me not into trials, but deliver me, please. It's difficult, but it's not purposeless. The Bible always presents trials as pathways to maturity. And it almost always speaks of true joy as being something that can only be discovered and found through trials, through suffering, true joy. And so it seems God often delivers us in and through our trials before seemingly delivering us out of them. Peter agrees with James. He was very familiar with trials, and this is what he had to say. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed in you. 1 Peter 4.12. Trials, no matter how difficult they may be, are aimed towards maturity and life, and hardships lead to glory, but not temptations. They have a different source and a different end game. Look at verses 13 to 15. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, there's the word, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own evil desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Okay, this is a different translation, isn't it? Same word. And immediately here, we also discern there's therefore three very different things from trials Unlike trials, temptation never comes from God because temptation is partnered with evil. God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. Secondly, it says temptation to sin, 
begins with our internal desires. Did you see that? The NIV translates these as evil desires, but in Greek, it's actually the word epithumia, literally over desire. This is significant. We can certainly be tempted towards evil things. But the greatest lure is the temptation towards making good things ultimate things, towards over-desiring good things. Take pornography versus sex as an example. You can be tempted by both. The former is blatantly evil. There's no redeeming value to pornography. But sex? Sex is a good thing. Unless it becomes an ultimate thing, an over-desire, a ruling passion, something that you thought you had control of that now has control over you, something that you can't live without. So temptation plays on desires in us, whether they're evil or whether they are over-desires for good things. And then thirdly, unlike trials, temptation always, always, always progresses towards destruction and death. It has no interest in giving you life. The verbs show these things. The first verb given in verse 14 is that temptation lures us in like an angler. Any anglers in the room? If you're not sure, angler is just a snooty way of saying fisherman. Okay? And every wise angler chooses a fly for the end of the fly line based really on two things. One is hunger and the other is hatch. Okay, every good angler does this. A hungry fish likes to feed on whatever has hatched in its immediate environment. So if you want to catch a fish, you lure it in with what it wants most or what it needs most. You play on its wants or on its wounds. This is true for us too. Temptation plays on our wants, and it plays on our wounds. The thing that we think we want the most or the thing that we think is missing and we need the most. I mean, I know this because of the topic of affairs. Every married person I know who has committed an affair has come to me and said basically the same thing. They've never said it made sense. They've said the other person gave me what I've always wanted. Or the other person gave me what was missing in my marriage. Wants and wounds. And so it's a, it's a siren call for us. We have to inventory our wants and our wounds. You have to, or you will be so vulnerable to temptation to be lured in and enticed to be seduced. That's the other verb given here in verse 14. The temptation entices us like a seductress. And the language here is actually a sexual metaphor. The person is seduced and gives in, and it leads to conception. That which is conceived continues to grow, often in secret or hiding like a child in a womb. And until birth is given, and what comes of that is a more visible and an obvious sin. And then sin grows, and it matures, and it begins to take on a life of its own. Sin in adulthood. Unlike trials, where the goal is that you would grow more mature and that sin would die, with temptation, it's that your sin grows and you die. 
It's a serious matter. So how do we overcome this? Dismissiveness? Of course not. And yet many of us are tempted to handle temptation that way. As if minimizing or pretending will make it go away. And these people tend to be intentionally stubborn or intentionally naive, purposefully clueless about the reality and the gravity and the consequences of sin. It won't work. Okay, but what about exertion? This is a a common thing in the churchy world. What about exertion, trying harder, self-discipline? This is the opposite of dismissiveness, isn't it? And, And yet those who have tried this know it only intermittently works. Okay, these are those who do everything in their power to fight against temptation. Come to church, join a group, read the Bible, pray more, do acts of service, get rid of or avoid whatever it is that tempts them. Lenten fast all year long. Get rid of the iPhone, the computer screen, the wine bottle, the liquor cabinet, the draft king, sports gambling apps, ice cream, the gym, the stock market. They do everything in their power to say no to temptation. And as important as this is, it will only produce intermittent relief to the problem. It's like Ulysses in the Odyssey having himself tied to the mast, and then all the shipmates putting Circe's wax in their ears just to try and avoid the call of the sirens. It's an unlivable solution. You cannot be tied to a mast with wax in your ears for the remainder of your life. And listen, let me say this. In times of severe temptation, tie yourself to the mast. Put the wax in your ears. Okay, do everything in your power to not give in to the temptation. I'm simply pointing out that there has to be a greater way. Saying no with all your might will never lastingly work because a worry wart needs a new and better fixation. A money lover needs a new and better treasure. An alcoholic needs a new and better drink. The solution to temptation is not exertion. It's substitution. The exchange of an old affection for a new and better one. We ultimately need a a power greater than evil itself to overpower temptation and start to do something new within. Where would a solution like this come from? The ancients might call it Christus Victor. It's a Latin phrase. It's actually a theological concept and is translated exactly how it sounds. It's Christ the victor. Um, And it's one of a few theological responses to the question, what did Jesus' death actually accomplish? Christus Victor proposes that Jesus' death was not just a payment for sin, but was conquering something. So from the very, very, very beginning, when the first temptation came from the serpent and human desire first became wayward, a divine conflict was set in motion. A war began. And this is revealed in our Old Testament reading that that just as Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve conceived and gave birth and brought forth sin and death, so also now God promises to the woman that she would conceive and give birth, and her, ch- her child would crush the serpent. Her child would crush the evil one. 
as, as goodness finds its source in God, so also evil finds its source in the evil one. And that's why, actually, there's purposeful ambiguity in the language of the prayer we're discussing, deliver us from evil. There, there's a definite article in front of evil. And so it could be translated, deliver us from the evil one, meaning, meaning this, what we needed in Christ was not only a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, a sacrificial lamb who would die in our place, but what we also needed was a conquering power over all powers that entice us to the very sin that Jesus was dying for. We need a victor. And throughout Scripture, this divine conflict unfolds. The Old Testament speaks of God as combating his enemies and conquering those who afflict God's people. And then the New Testament introduces a child born of a woman whose birth announcement is made by the angel armies of heaven. It's no wonder the shepherds were scared. These weren't gentle angels. These were the army hosts of heaven. What a strange birth announcement. What was it saying? Why the pomp and circumstance? The New Testament continues to unfold and tell us. It speaks of Christ's death as fighting against and triumphing over the evil powers of this world. This was displayed not only in his death, but also in his life. Jesus overcame the evil one at the beginning of his life, the tempter above all tempters, the same one that caused the fall in the garden. And then at the end of his life, as he was considering and surveying his impending brutal death, a death I hope none of you ever have to die, he was tempted and he didn't give in. He endured the temptation without sin. Thank God he endured the temptation without sin. And through his death, we're told that Jesus wasn't just dying for our sins. This is how Colossians 2 says it. God was disarming the rulers and the authorities of evil and putting them to open shame, triumphing over them through Christ's death. Colossians 2.15. And when Jesus returns, Christus victor, it's not as a lamb who is slain, it's as a warrior on a horse who is finally and fully removing every vestige of evil from the face of the world. Friends, if he can do this for the entire cosmos, he can do it in your life. Come to him. Come to him for power over sin and temptation in your life. He is the greater yes. He is the new and better affection. And maturity really is going to embrace and allow the yes of Christ to begin to mark you and progressively overwhelm you. Uh, we signify this in baptism. We had baptisms this morning. Did you notice how every baptism begins? There's some very strange language back and forth. I'm going to remind you. Question, do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Answer, I renounce them. Question, do you renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? Answer, I renounce them. 
Question, do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? Answer, I renounce them. Question, do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your savior? Answer, I do. Perhaps it's not so strange after all. Christian, bring your baptism to mind when you are tempted. Renounce again and again the evil powers of this world and the temptation that they use and embrace the victory of Jesus Christ. By whose life and death we have overcome evil. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But we also thank you for your mercy, your great mercy towards us. We pray, would you cause our hearts and minds to embrace Jesus Christ as our greatest affection, as our victor, as our overwhelming yes. We ask for this grace in his name. Amen.